CD7. Jeremy smoothed down his hair while the grumbling Igor disappeared into the shop and returned with the guests. Lady Le Jean Fur and some other people, said Igor. It's good to see you, your ladyship, said Jeremy, smiling glassily. He vaguely remembered something he had read. Won't you introduce me to your friends? Lady Le Jean gave him a nervous look. Oh, yes, humans always needed to know names, and he was smiling again. It made it so hard to think. Uh, Mr. Jeremy, these are my uh, associates, she said. Mr. Black, uh, Mr. Green, Miss Brown, uh, Miss White, Miss Yellow, and Mr. Blue. Jeremy held out his hand. I'm pleased to meet you, he said. Six pairs of eyes looked uncomprehendingly at the hand. The custom here is to shake hands, said her ladyship. In unison, the auditors extended a hand and wiggled it slowly in the air. "'The hand of the other person,' said her ladyship. She gave Jeremy a thin-lipped smile. "'They are foreigners,' she said. And she recognised the panic in their eyes, even if they didn't. "'We can count the number and types of atom in this room,' they were thinking. "'How can there be anything in here we cannot understand?' Jeremy managed to catch one wavering hand in his. "'And you are Mr... The auditor turned worried eyes on Lady Lejean. "'Mr. Black,' she said. "'I understood that we were a Mr. Black,' said another male-shaped auditor. "'No, you are Mr. Green.' "'Nevertheless, we would prefer Mr. Black. "'We are the senior, and Black is a more significant shade. "'We do not wish to be Mr. Green.' "'The translation of your names is not, I think, important,' said Lady Lejean. She gave Jeremy another smile. "'They are my accountants,' she added, some reading on her part having suggested that this might excuse most oddities. "'You see, Igor,' said Jeremy, "'they are simply accountants.' Igor grimaced. Where his baggage was concerned, accountants were probably worse news than lawyers. "'Grey would be acceptable,' said Mr. Green." "'Nevertheless, you are Mr. Green. "'We are Mr. Black. "'It is a matter of status.' "'If that is the case,' said Miss White, "'white is higher status than black. "'Black is absence of colour. "'The point is valid,' said Mr. Black. "'Therefore we are now Mr. White. "'You are Miss Red. "'You previously indicated that you were Mr. Black.' New information indicates a change of position. This does not indicate incorrectness of said previous position. It's happening already, thought Lady Lejean. It's in the darkness where your eyes can't see. The universe becomes two halves, and you live in the half behind the eyes. Once you have a body, you have a me. I have seen galaxies die. I have watched atoms dance. "'but until I had the dark behind the eyes, "'I didn't know the death from the dance. "'And we were wrong. "'When you pour water into a jug, "'it becomes jug-shaped, "'and it is not the same water any more. "'An hour ago they never dreamed of having names, "'and now they're arguing about them, "'and they can't hear what I think.' "'She wanted more time. "'The habits of a billion years "'don't yield entirely to a mouthful of bread.' 
and she could see that a crazy life-form like humanity should not be allowed to exist. Yes, indeed, certainly, of course. But she wanted more time. They should be studied. Yes, studied. There should be reports. Yes, reports. Full reports. Long, long, full reports. Caution. That was it. That was the word. Auditors loved that word. Always put off until tomorrow something that tomorrow you could always put off until, well, let's say, next year. It has to be said that Lady Lejean was not herself at this point. She didn't quite have a grip of herself to be. The other six auditors, in time, yes, they'd think the same way. But there wasn't time. If only she could persuade them to eat something, that would... Yes, that would bring them to their senses. There seemed to be no food around, though. She could see a very large hammer on the bench. "'How is progress, Mr. Jeremy? she said, walking over to the clock. Igor moved very fast and stood almost protectively next to the glass pillar. Jeremy hurried forward. "'We have carefully aligned all the systems.' "'Again?' Igor growled. "'Yes, again. Several times, in fact,' Igor added. "'And now we simply await the right weather conditions. "'But I thought you stored lightning.' Her ladyship indicated the greenish glass cylinders bubbling and hissing along the wall of the workshop. Just by the bench with, yes, the hammer on it. And no one could read her thoughts. The power. There will easily be enough to keep the mechanism working, but to start the clock will require what Igor calls a jump, said Jeremy. Igor held up two crocodile clips the size of his head. Thright, he said, but you hardly ever get the right kind of thunderstorms down here. Thought of built this in Uberwald, I kept saying. What is the nature of this delay? said, possibly, Mr. White. We need a thunderstorm, sir, for the lightning, said Jeremy. Lady Lejean stepped back a little closer to the bench. Well, arrange one, said Mr. White. Ha! Huh. Well, if we were in Uberwald, of course. It is merely a matter of pressures and potentials, said Mr. White. Can you not simply create one? Igor gave him a look of disbelief mixed with respect. You're not from Uberwald, are you? he said. Then he gasped and banged the side of his head. Hey, I felt that one, he said. Whoops! How did you do that? Press her dropping like a stone. Sparks glittered along his black fingernails. He beamed. I'll just go and raise the lightning rod, he said, hurrying to a pulley system on the wall. Lady Lejean turned on the others. This time she wished they could read her thoughts. She didn't know enough pronounceable human swear words. "'That is against the rules!' she hissed. "'Mere expediency,' said Mr. White. "'If you had not been lax, this would have been concluded by now.' "'I counselled further study.' "'Unnecessary.' "'Is there a problem?' said Jeremy." in the diffident voice he used for conversations not involving clocks. "'The clock should not be started yet,' said Lady Lejean, not taking her eyes off the other auditors. "'But you asked me. We've been... It's all set up. There may be problems. I think we should see another week of testing.' But there weren't problems she knew. Jeremy had built the thing as if he'd built a dozen like it before. 
It had been all Lady Lejean could do to spin things out this long, especially with Igor watching her like a hawk. "'What is your name, young person?' said Mr. White to Jeremy. The clockmaker backed away. "'Jeremy,' he said, "'and I—I uh, I don't understand, Mr. Uh, White. A clock tells the time. A clock isn't dangerous. How could a clock be a problem? It's a perfect clock. Then start it.' "'But her ladyship!' the door-knocker thundered. "'Igor!' "'Yes, sir,' said Igor from the hallway. "'How did the servant-person get there?' said Mr. White, still watching her ladyship. "'It's a sort of trick they... they have,' said Jeremy. "'I'm... I'm sure it's only... "'It's Dr. Hopkins, sir,' said Igor, entering from the hall. "'I told him you were busy, but... "'But Dr. Hopkins... "'although apparently as mild-mannered as milk, "'was also a guild official "'and had survived as such for several years. "'Ducking under Igor's arm was no problem at all "'for a man who could handle a meeting of clockmakers, "'no two of whom exactly ticked in time "'with the rest of humanity. "'I just happened to have business this way,' "'he began, smiling brightly, "'and it was no trouble to drop in at the apothecary "'to pick up, oh, you have company.' "'Igor grimaced, but there was the code to think of. "'Thal I make some tea, sir?' he said, as all the auditors glared at the doctor. "'What is this tea?' Mr. White demanded. "'It is a protocol!' snapped Lady Lejean. Mr. White hesitated. Protocol was important. Uh, 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 yes,' said Jeremy. "'Tea, Igor, please, uh, please!' "'My word! I see you finished your clock,' said Dr. Hopkins, apparently oblivious of an atmosphere that could float iron." "'What a magnificent piece of work!' The auditors stared at one another as the doctor ambled past them and looked up at the glass face. "'Well done indeed, Jeremy,' he said, removing his glasses and polishing them enthusiastically. "'And what is this pretty blue glow?' "'It's... it's the crystal ring,' said Jeremy. "'It... it... it... it spins light,' said Lady Lejean. "'And then it makes a hole in the universe.' "'Really?' said Dr. Hopkins, putting his glasses back on. "'What an original idea! Does a cuckoo come out?' "'Tick!' Of the very worst words that can be heard by anyone high in the air, the pair known as uh-oh possibly combined the maximum of bowel-knotting terror with the minimum wastage of breath. When Lutze uttered them, Lobsang didn't need a translation. He'd been watching the clouds for some time. They were getting blacker and thicker and darker. "'The handle's tingling!' shouted Lutze. "'That's because there's a storm right above us!' screamed Lobsang. "'The sky was as clear as a bell a few minutes ago!' Ank Morpork was much closer now. Lobsang could make out some of the taller buildings and see the river snaking across the plain, but the storm was coming up all around the city. "'I'm going to have to land this thing while I can,' Lutze said. "'Hold on!' The stick dropped until it was a few feet above the cabbage fields, the plants were a rushing green blur inches below Lobsang's sandals. Lobsang heard another word that, while not the worst you can hear while airborne, is not at all good when it's said by the person steering. Ah, uh, Do you know how to stop this?' screamed Lobsang. "'Not in so many words!' shouted Lutze. "'Hold on, I'm going to try something!' The stick tilted up, but kept moving in the same direction. The bristles dipped into the cabbages. It took the width of a field to slow down, at the end of a furrow, with the smell that only squashed cabbage leaves can yield. 
"'How fine can you slice time?' the sweeper said, scrambling over the battered plants. "'I'm pretty good,' Lobsang began. "'Get better, quick!' Lutze faded to blue as he ran towards the city. Lobsang caught him up within a hundred yards, but the sweeper was still fading, still slicing time thinner and thinner. The apprentice gritted his teeth and followed, straining every muscle. The old man might be a fraud when it came to fighting, but there was no kidding here. The world went from blue to indigo to an inky, unnatural darkness like the shadow of an eclipse. This was deep time. You couldn't stay there long, he knew. Even if you could tolerate the ghastly chill, there were parts of the body that just weren't designed for this. Go too far down, too, and you'd die if you came back too quickly. He hadn't seen it, of course, no apprentice had, but there were some quite graphic drawings in the classrooms. A man's life could become very, very painful if his blood began to move through time faster than his bones. It would also be very short. "'I can't keep this up!' he panted, running after Lutze in the violet gloom. "'You can!' gasped the sweeper. "'You're fast, right?' "'I'm not trained for this!' The city was getting closer. "'No one's trained for this!' growled Lutze. "'You do it, and you'll find out that you're good at it!' "'What happens if you find out you're no good?' said Lobsang. The going felt easier now. He no longer had the feeling that his skin was trying to drag itself off him. "'Dead men don't find things out,' said Lutze. He turned his head to his apprentice, and his evil grin was a yellow-toothed curve in the shadows. "'Getting a hang?' he added. "'I'm... I'm on top of it. Right, then, now that we've warmed up...' To Lobsang's horror, the sweeper faded further into the dark. He called up reserves he knew he didn't have. He screamed at his liver to keep up, thought that he felt his brain creak, and plunged on. The shape of Lutze lightened as Lobsang drew level with him in time. Still here? One last effort, lad. I can't. You bloody well can. Lobsang gulped freezing air and fell onwards, where the light was suddenly a calm, pale blue, and Lutze was trotting gently between the frozen carts and unmoving people around the city's gate. "'See? Nothing to it,' said the sweeper. "'Just maintain, that's all. Nice and steady.' It was like balancing on a wire. It was fine if you didn't think about it. "'But all the scrolls say you go blue and violet and into the black, and then you hit the wall,' said Lobsang. "'Ah, well, scrolls,' said Lutze, and left it there, as if the tone of the voice said it all. "'This is Zimmerman's Valley, lad. It helps if you know it's here. The abbot said it's something to do with... what was it?' Oh, yeah, boundary conditions. Something like the foam on the tide. We're right on the edge, boy. But I can breathe easily. Yeah, shouldn't happen. Keep moving about, though, otherwise you'll exhaust all the good air round your body field. Good old Zimmerman, eh? One of the best he was. And he reckoned there was another dip even closer to the wall, too. Did he ever find it? Don't think so. Why? The way he exploded gave me a hint. Don't worry. You can maintain the slice easily here. You don't have to think about it. You've got other things to think about. Keep an eye on those clouds. Lobsang looked up. Even in this blue-on-blue landscape, the clouds over the city looked ominous. It's what happened back in Oberwald, said Lutze. The clock needs a lot of power. The storm blew up out of nowhere. But the city's huge. How can we find a clock here? First, we're going to head for the centre, said Lutze. Why? Because, with luck... We won't have to run so far when the lightning strikes, of course. Sweeper, no one can outrun lightning. Lutze spun round and grabbed Lobsang by the robe, dragging him closer. Then tell me where to run, speedy boy, he shouted. There's more to you than meets the third eye, lad. 
No apprentice should be able to find Zimmerman's Valley. It takes hundreds of years of training, and no one should be able to make the spinners sit up and dance to his tune the very first time he sees them. Think I'm daft, do you? Orphan boy, strange power, what the hell are you? The Mandela knew you. Well, I'm just a mortal human, and what I know is I'll be damned if I'll see the world shattered a second time. So, help me. Whatever it is you've got, I need it now. Use it. He let go and stood back. A vein in his bald head was throbbing. But I don't know what I can do to... Find out what you can do. Tick. Protocol. Rules. Precedent. Ways of doing things. That's how we've always worked, thought Lady Lejean. This and this must follow that. It has always been our strength. I wonder if it can be a weakness. If looks could have killed, Dr Hopkins would have been a smear on the wall. The auditors watched his every move like cats watching a new species of mouse. Lady Lejean had been incarnate much longer than the others. Time can change a body, especially when you've never had one before. She wouldn't have stared and fumed. She would have clubbed the doctor to the ground. What was one more human? She realised, with some amazement, that the thought there was a human thought. But the other six were still wet behind the ears. They hadn't yet realised the dimensions of duplicity that you needed to survive as a human being. They clearly found it hard to think inside the little dark world behind the eyes too. Auditors reached decisions in concert with thousands, millions of other auditors. Sooner or later, they'd learn to be their own thinkers, though. It might take a while, because they'd try to learn from one another first. At the moment, they were watching Igor's tea tray with great suspicion. Drinking tea is protocol, said Lady Lejean. Is this correct? Mr White barked at Dr Hopkins. Oh, yes, said the doctor. With a ginger biscuit, usually, he added hopefully. A ginger biscuit? replied Mr. White. A biscuit of red-brown colouring? Yatha, said Igor. He nodded to the plate on his tray. I would like to try a ginger biscuit, volunteered Miss Red. Oh, yes, thought Lady Lejean. Please try the ginger biscuits. We do not eat or drink, snapped Mr. White. He gave Lady Lejean a look of deep suspicion. It could cause... Incorrect ways of thinking. But it is the custom, said Lady Lejean, to ignore protocol is to draw attention. Mr. White hesitated, but he was a quick adapter. It is against our religion, he said. Correct. It was an amazing leap. It was inventive, and he'd come up with it all alone. Lady Lejean was impressed. The auditors had tried to understand religion, because so much that made no sense whatsoever was done in its name. But it could also excuse practically any kind of eccentricity. Genocide, for example. By comparison, a lack of tea-drinking was easy. Yes, indeed, said Mr. White, turning to the other auditors. Is that not true? Yes, that is not true, indeed, said Mr. Green. Ooh, said Dr. Hopkins. I did not know there was any religion that forbade tea. Indeed, said Mr. Green. Lady Lejean could almost feel his mind racing. It is a... Yes, it is a drink of the... Correct, 
It is a drink of the extremely bad, negatively regarded gods. It is a, correct, it is a commandment of our religion to, yes, to shun ginger biscuits also. There was sweat on his forehead. For an auditor, this was genius-level creativity. Also, he went on slowly, as if reading the words off some page invisible to everyone else, our religion, correct, our religion demands that the clock be started now, for who may know when the hour may be? Despite herself, Lady Lejean nearly applauded. Who indeed? said Dr. Hopkins. I... "'I absolutely agree,' said Jeremy, who had been staring at Lady Lejean. "'I don't understand who you... Uh, why there's all this fuss. I, I don't understand why... Uh, oh, dear, I'm having a headache.' Dr Hopkins spilled his tea because of the speed with which he got up and reached into his coat pocket. "'Ah, it so happens I was passing the apothecary on my way here,' he began all in one breath. "'I feel it's not the time to start the clock,' said Lady Lejean, edging herself along the desk. The hammer was still invitingly there. "'I'm seeing those little flashes of light, Dr. Hopkins,' said Jeremy urgently, staring into the middle distance. "'Not the flashes of light! Not the flashes of light!' said Dr. Hopkins. He grabbed a teaspoon off Igor's tray, stared at it, threw it over his shoulder, tipped the tea out of a cup, opened the bottle of blue medicine by smashing the top off on the edge of the bench, and poured a cupful, spilling quite a lot of it in his hurry. The hammer was inches away from her ladyship's hand. She didn't dare look round, but she could sense it there. While the auditors stared at the trembling Jeremy, she let her fingers walk across the bench. She wouldn't even have to move. A brisk overarm throw should do it. She saw Dr Hopkins try to put the cup to Jeremy's lips. The boy put his hands over his face and elbowed the cup out of the way, spilling the medicine across the floor. Then Lady Lejean's fingers were grasping the handle. She brought her hand round and hurled the hammer directly at the clock. Tick. The war was going badly for the weaker side. Their positioning was wrong, their tactics ragged, their strategy hopeless. The Red Army advanced across the whole front, dismembering the scurrying remnant of the collapsing army. There was room for only one anthill on this lawn. Death found war down among the grass blades. He admired attention to detail. War was in full armour, too, but the human heads he normally had tied to his saddle had been replaced by ant heads, feelers and all. "'Do they notice, do you think?' he said. "'Oh, I doubt it,' said War. "'Nevertheless, if they did, I'm sure they would appreciate it.' "'Ha! Only decent theatre of war around these days,' said War. "'That's what I like about ants. The buggers don't learn, what?' "'It has been rather peaceful of late, I agree,' said Death. "'Peaceful?' said War. "'Ha! I may as well change my name to Police Action or Negotiated Settlement.' Remember the old days? Warriors used to froth at the mouth. Arms and legs bouncing in all directions. Great times, eh? He leaned across and slapped Death on the back. I'll bag em and you tag em. What? This looked hopeful, Death thought. Talking of the old days, he said carefully, I'm sure you remember the tradition of riding out. War gave him a puzzled look. Mine's a blank on that one, old boy. I sent out the call... "'Can't say it rings a bell.' "'Apocalypse,' said Death. "'End of the world.' "'War continued to stare. 
Definitely knocking, old chap, and no one's home. And talking of home... War looked around at the twitching remains of the recent slaughter. Spot of lunch. Around them the forest of grass grew shorter and smaller, until it was indeed no more than grass, and became the lawn outside a house. It was an ancient long house. Where else would War live? But Death saw ivy growing over the roof. He remembered when War would never have allowed anything like that, and a little worm of worry began to gnaw. War hung up his helmet as he entered, and once he would have kept it on, and the benches around the fire pit would have been crowded with warriors, and the air would have been thick with beer and sweat. "'Brought an old friend back here,' he said. Mrs. War was preparing something on the modern black iron kitchen range, which, Death saw, had been installed in the fire pit, with shiny pipes extending into the hole in the roof. She gave Death the kind of nod a wife gives a man whom her husband has, despite previous warnings, unexpectedly brought back from the pub. "'We are having rabbit!' she said, and added in the voice of one who has been put upon and will extract payment later, "'I'm sure I can make it stretch to three. War's big red face wrinkled. "'Do I like rabbit?' "'Yes, dear.' "'I thought I liked beef.' "'No, dear, beef gives you wind.' "'Huh,' War sighed. "'Any chance of onions?' "'You don't like onions, dear.' "'I don't.' "'Because of your stomach, dear.' "'Huh.' War smiled awkwardly at death. It's rabbit, he said. Um, dear, do I ride out for apocalypses? Mrs. War took the lid off a saucepan and prodded viciously at something inside. No, dear, she said firmly. You always come down with a cold. I thought I rather, um, sort of liked that kind of thing. No, dear, you don't. Despite himself, death was fascinated. He had never come across the idea of keeping your memory inside someone else's head. "'Perhaps I would like a beer,' War ventured. "'You don't like beer, dear?' "'I don't.' "'Now it brings on your trouble.' "'Ah, er, uh, how do I feel about brandy?' "'You don't like brandy, dear. You like your special oat drink with the vitamins.' "'Oh, yeah,' said War mournfully. "'I'd forgotten I liked that.' He looked sheepishly at death. "'It's quite nice,' he said. "'Could I have a word with you?' said Death. "'In private.' War looked puzzled. "'Do I like work in private, please?' Death thundered. Mrs. War turned and gave Death a disdainful look. "'I understand, I quite understand,' she said haughtily. "'But don't you dare say anything to bring on his acid. "'That's all I shall say.' Mrs. War had been a Valkyrie once, Death remembered. It was another reason to be extremely careful on the battlefield. "'You've never been tempted by the prospect of marriage, old man?' said War, when she'd gone. "'No, absolutely not, in no way.' "'Why not?' Death was nonplussed. It was like asking a brick wall what it thought of dentistry. As a question, it made no sense. "'I have been to see the other two, he said, ignoring it. Famine doesn't care, and pestilence is frightened. The two of us against the auditors, said War. Right is on our side. Speaking as War, said War, I'd hate to tell you what happens to very small armies that have right on their side. I have seen you fight. My old right arm isn't what it was, War murmured. You are immortal, you are not ill, said Death but he could see the worried, slightly hunted look in War's eyes, 
and knew that there was only one way this was going to go. To be human was to change, Death realised. The horsemen were horsemen. Men had wished upon them a certain shape, a certain form. And just like the gods and the tooth fairy and the hog father, their shape had changed them. They would never be human, but they had caught aspects of humanity as though they were some kind of disease. Because the point was that nothing, nothing had one aspect and one aspect alone. Men would envisage a being called famine, but once they gave him arms and legs and eyes, that meant he had to have a brain. That meant he'd think. And a brain can't think about plagues of locusts all the time. Emergent behaviour again. Complications always crept in. Everything changed. Thank goodness, thought Death, that I am completely unchanged and exactly the same as I ever was. And then there was one. Tick! The hammer stopped halfway across the room. Mr. White walked over and picked it out of the air. Really, your ladyship, he said, you think we don't watch you? You, the Igor, make the clock ready. Igor looked from him to Lady Lejean and back. I only take orders from Martha Jeremy, thank you, he said. The world will end if you start that clock, said Lady Lejean. What a foolish idea, said Mr. White. We laugh at it. Ha, 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 said the other auditors obediently. I don't need medicine, Jeremy shouted, pushing Dr. Hopkins out of the way, and I don't need people to tell me what to do. Shut up! In the silence, thunder grumbled in the clouds. Thank you, said Jeremy more calmly. Now, I hope I am a rational man, and I shall approach this rationally. A clock is a measuring device. I have built the perfect clock, my lady. I mean, ladies and gentlemen. It will revolutionise timekeeping. He reached up and moved the hands of the clock to almost one o'clock. Then he reached down, gripped the pendulum and set it swinging. The world continued to exist. You see, the universe doesn't stop even for my clock, Jeremy went on. He folded his hands and sat down. Watch, he said calmly. The clock ticked gently. Then... Something rattled in the machinery around it, and the big green glass tubes of acid began to sizzle. "'Well, nothing seems to have happened,' said Dr. Hopkins. "'That's a blessing.' Sparks crackled around the lightning rod positioned above the clock. "'This is just making a path for the lightning,' said Jeremy happily. "'We send a little lightning up, and a lot more comes back.' Things were moving inside the clock. There was a sound best represented as fizzle and greenish-blue light filled the case. "'Ah, the cascade has initialized,' said Jeremy. "'As a little exercise, the uh, more traditional pendulum clock has been slaved to the big clock, you'll see, so that every second it will be readjusted to the correct time.' He smiled, and one cheek twitched. "'Some day all clocks will be like this,' he said, and added, "'While I... Normally hate such an imprecise term as any second now. Nevertheless, I... Tick. There was a fight going on in the square. In the strange colours involved in the time-slicing state known as Zimmerman's Valley, it was picked out in shades of light blue. 
By the look of it, a couple of watchmen were trying to take on a gang. One man was airborne and hung there without support. Another had fired a crossbow directly at one of the watchmen. The arrow was nailed, unmoving in the air. Lobsang examined it curiously. "'You're going to touch it, aren't you?' said a voice behind Lobsang. "'You're just going to reach out and touch it, despite everything I've told you. Pay attention to the damn sky!' Lutze was smoking nervously. When it got a few inches away from his body, the smoke went rigid in the air. "'Are you sure you can't feel where it is?' he snapped. "'It's all round us, Sweeper. We're so close, it... "'It's like trying to see the wood when you're standing under the trees. "'Well, this is the Street of Cunning Artificers, "'and that's the Guild of Clockmakers over there,' said Lutze. "'And I don't dare go inside if it's this close, not until we're certain. "'What about the University? "'Wizards aren't mad enough to try it. "'You're going to try and race the lightning. "'It's doable. "'If we start from here in the valley, "'lightning ain't as quick as people think. "'Are we waiting to see a little pointy bit of lightning "'coming out of the cloud?' Ha! Kids today, where do they get their education? The first stroke is from the ground to the air, lad. That makes a nice hole in the air for the main lightning to come down. Look for the glow. We've got to be giving the road plenty of sand all by the time it reaches the clouds. You holding up, OK? I could go on like this all day, said Lobsang. Don't try it. Lutze scanned the sky again. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe it's just a storm. Sooner or later you get... He stopped. One look at Lobsang's face was enough. Okay, said the sweeper slowly. Just give me the direction. Point if you can't speak. Lobsang dropped to his knees, hands rising to his head. I don't know. Don't know. Silvery lights rose over the city a few streets away. Lutze grabbed the boy's elbow. "'Come on, lad, on your feet. Faster than lightning, eh? Okay?' "'Yeah, yeah, okay. You can do it, right?' Lobsang blinked. He could see the glass house again, stretching away as a pale outline overlaid on the city. "'Clock!' he said thickly. "'Run, boy, run!' shouted Lutze. "'And don't stop for anything!' Lobsang plunged forward and found it hard. Time moved aside for him, sluggishly at first, as his legs pumped. With every step he pushed himself, faster and faster, the landscape changing colours again as the world slowed even further. There was another stitch in time, the sweeper had said. Another valley, even closer to the null point. Insofar as he could think at all, Lobsang hoped he would reach it soon. His body felt as though it would fly apart. He could feel his bones creaking. The glow ahead was halfway to the iron-heavy clouds now, but he'd reached a crossroads and he could see it rising from a house halfway down the street. He turned to look for the sweeper and saw the man yards behind him, mouth open, a statue falling forward. Lobsang turned, concentrated, let time speed up. He reached Lutze and caught him before he hit the ground. There was blood coming from the old man's ears. "'I can't do it, lad,' the sweeper mumbled. "'Get on! Get on!' "'I can do it. It's like running downhill. Not for me, it ain't.' "'I can't just leave you here like this. Save us from heroes! Get that bloody clock!' Lobsang hesitated. The downstroke was already emerging from the clouds, a drifting, glowing spike. He ran. The lightning was falling towards a shop a few buildings away. He could see a big clock hanging over its window. 
He pushed against the flow of time ever further, and it yielded, but the lightning had reached the iron pole atop the building. The window is closer than the door. He lowered his head and jumped through it, the glass shattering around him and then freezing in midair, clocks pinwheeling off the display and stopping as if caught in invisible amber. There was another door ahead of him. He grabbed the knob and pulled, feeling the terrible resistance of a slab of wood urged to move an appreciable fraction of the speed of light. It was barely open a few inches when he saw, beyond, the slow ooze of lightning run down the rod and into the heart of the big clock. The clock struck one. Time stopped. Tick. Mr. Soak, the dairyman, was washing bottles at the sink when the air dimmed and the water solidified. He stared at it for a moment, and then, with the manner of a man trying an experiment, held the bottle over the stone floor and let it go. It remained hanging in the air. Damn it, he said. Another idiot with a clock, eh? What he did then was not usual dairy practice. He walked into the centre of the room and made a few passes in the air with his hands. The air brightened, the water splashed, the bottle smashed, although when Ronnie turned around and waved a hand at it, the glass slivers ran together again. Then Ronnie Soak sighed and went to the cream-settling room. Large, wide bowls stretched away into the distance, and if Ronnie had ever allowed another to notice this, the distance contained far more distance than is ever found in a normal building. "'Show me,' he said. The surface of the nearest bowl of milk became a mirror, and then began to show pictures. Ronnie went back into the dairy, took his peaked cap off its hook by the door, and crossed the courtyard to the stable. The sky overhead was a sullen, unmoving grey as he emerged, leading his horse. The horse was black, glistening with condition, and there was this about it that was odd. It shone as though it was illuminated by a red light. Redness spangled off its shoulders and flanks, even under the greyness. And even when it was harnessed to the cart, it didn't look like any kind of horse that should be hitched to any kind of wagon. But people never noticed this, and again... Ronnie took care to make sure that they didn't. The cart gleamed with white paint, picked out here and there with a fresh green. The wording on the side declared proudly, Ronald Soak, Hygienic Dairyman, Established. Perhaps it was odd that people never said, Established when, exactly. If they ever had, the answer would have had to be quite complicated. Ronnie opened the gates to the yard, and milk crates rattling, set out into the timeless moment. It was terrible, he thought, the way things conspired against the small businessman. Lobsang Lud awoke to a little clicking, spinning sound. He was in darkness, but it yielded reluctantly to his hand. It felt like velvet, and it was. He'd rolled under one of the display cabinets. There was a vibration in the small of his back. He reached around gingerly and realised that the portable procrastinator was revolving in its cage. So... How did it go now? He was living on borrowed time. He'd got maybe an hour, perhaps a lot less, but he could slice it, so... No. Something told him that trying that would be a really terminal idea, with time stored in a device made by Q. The mere thought made him feel that his skin was inches from a universe full of razor blades. So, one hour, perhaps a lot less. But you could rewind a spinner, right? No. The handle was at the back. You could rewind someone else's spinner. Thank you, Q, and your experimental models. Could you take it off, then? No. The harness was part of...
of it. Without it, different parts of your body would be travelling at different speeds. The effect would probably be rather like freezing a human body solid and then pushing it down a flight of stone stairs. Open the box with the crowbar that you will find inside. Hmm. There was a green-blue glow through the crack in the door. He took a step towards it and heard the spinner suddenly pick up speed. That meant it was shedding more time, and that was bad when you had an hour, perhaps a lot less. He took a step away from the door, and the procrastinator settled back into its routine clicking. So, Lutze was out in the street, and he had a spinner, and that should have cut in automatically too. In this timeless world, he was going to be the only person who could turn a handle. The glass that he had broken in his leap through the window had opened around the hole like a great sparkling flower. He reached out to touch a piece. It moved as though alive, cut his finger, and then dropped towards the ground, stopping only when it fell out of the field around his body. Don't touch people, Lutze had said. Don't touch arrows. Don't touch things that were moving. That was the rule. But the glass... But the glass in normal time had been flying through the air. It'd still have that energy, wouldn't it? He eased himself carefully around the glass and opened the front door of the shop. The wood moved very slowly, fighting against the enormous speed. Lutze was not in the street, but there was something new hovering in the air just a few inches above the ground, right where the old man had been. It had not been there before. Someone with their own portable time had been here and dropped this and had moved on before it reached the ground. It was a small glass jar, coloured blue by temporal effects. Now, how much energy could it have? Lobsang cupped his hand and gingerly brought it underneath and up, and there was a tingle and a sudden feeling of weight as the spinner's field claimed it. Now its true colours came back. The jar was a milky pink, or rather clear glass, that looked pink because of the contents. The paper lid was covered with badly printed pictures of unbelievably flawless strawberries, surrounding some ornate lettering which read, Ronald Soak Hygienic Dairyman Strawberry Yoghurt, Fresh as the Morning Dew. Soak. He knew the name. The man had delivered milk to the Guild. Good fresh milk, too, not the watery, green-tinted stuff the other dairies supplied. Very reliable, everyone said. But, reliable or not, he was just a milkman. All right, just a very good milkman. And if time had stopped, then why... Lobsang looked around desperately. The people and carts that thronged the street were still there. No one had moved. No one could move. But something was running along the gutter. It looked like a rat in a black robe, running along on its hind legs. It looked up at Lobsang, and he saw that it had a skull rather than a head. As skulls went, it was quite a cheerful one. The word squeak manifested itself inside his brain without bothering to go via his ears. Then the rat hopped onto the pavement and scampered down an alley. Lobsang followed it. A moment later, someone behind him grabbed him by the neck. He went to break the lock and realised how much he'd relied on slicing when he was fought. Besides, the person behind him had a very strong grip indeed. "'I just want to make sure you don't do anything silly,' it said. It was a female voice. "'What is this thing on your back?' "'Who are... the protocol in these matters,' said the voice, "'is that the person with the killer neck grip asks the questions.' "'Er, uh, it's a procrastinator. It stores time. Who... "'Oh, dear, there you go again. "'What is your name?' A "'Lobsang. Lobsang Lud.' Look, could you wind me up, please? It's urgent. Certainly, Lobsang Lud. 
You are thoughtless and impulsive and deserve to die a stupid and pointless death. What? And you are also rather slow on the uptake. You are referring to this handle? Yes, I'm running out of time. Now can I ask who you are? Miss Susan. Hold still. He heard behind him the incredibly welcome sound of the procrastinator's clockwork being rewound. Miss Susan, he said. That's what most people I know call me. Now I'm going to let you go. I will add that trying anything stupid will be counterproductive. Besides, I'm the only person in the world right now who might be inclined to twiddle your handle again. The pressure was released. Lobsang turned slowly. Miss Susan was a slightly built young woman, dressed severely all in black. Her hair stood out around her head like an aura, white blonde with one black streak. But the most striking thing about her was... was everything, Lobsang realised, everything from her expression to the way she stood. Some people fade into the background. Miss Susan faded into the foreground. She stood out. Everything she stood in front of became nothing more than background. Finished, she said. Seen everything? Sorry. Have you seen an old man, dressed a bit like me, with one of these on his back? No. Now it's my turn. Have you got rhythm? What? Susan rolled her eyes. All right. Do you have music? Not on me, no. And you certainly haven't got a girl, said Miss Susan. I saw old man Trouble go past a few minutes ago. It'll be a good idea if you don't bump into him, then. And is he likely to have taken my friend? I doubt it. And old man Trouble is more an it than a he. Anyway, there's far worse than him around right now. Even the bogeymen have gone to ground. Look, time has stopped, right? said Lobsang. Yes. So how can you be here talking to me? I'm not what you might call a creature of time, said Miss Susan. I work in it, but I don't have to live there. There are a few of us about. Like this old man Trouble you mentioned? Right. And the Hogfather, the Tooth Fairy, the Sandman, people like that. I thought they were mythical. So? Susan glanced out of the mouth of the alley again. And you're not? I take it you didn't stop the clock, said Miss Susan, looking up and down the street. No, I was too late. Perhaps I shouldn't have gone back to help Lute say. I'm sorry. You were dashing to prevent the end of the world, but you stopped to help some old man. You hero. Oh, I wouldn't say that I was a... And then Lobsang stopped. She hadn't said, you hero, in the tone of, you star. It had been in the tone in which people say, you idiot. I see a lot of your sort, Susan went on. Heroes have a very strange grasp of elementary maths, you know. If you'd smashed the clock before it struck, everything would have been fine. Now the world has stopped and we've been invaded and we're probably all going to die just because you stopped to help someone. I mean, very worthy and all that, but very, very human. She used the word as if she meant it to mean silly. You mean you need cool, calculating bastards to save the world, do you? said Lobsang. The cool calculation does help, I must admit, said Susan. Now shall we go and look at this clock? Why? The damage is done now. If we smash it, it'll only make things worse. Besides, um, the spinner started to run wild, and I, uh, I felt... Cautious, said Susan. Good. Caution is sensible. But there's something I want to check. Lobsang tried to pull himself together. 
This strange woman had the air of someone who knew exactly what she was doing, who knew exactly what everyone was doing. And besides, what alternative did he have? Then he remembered the yoghurt pot. "'Does this mean anything?' he said. "'I'm certain it was dropped in the street after time stopped.' She took the pot and examined it. "'Oh,' she said casually. "'Ronnie's been around, has he?' "'Ronnie? Oh, we all know Ronnie. "'What's that supposed to mean?' Let's just say, if he found your friend, then your friend is going to be okay. Probably okay. More okay than he would be if just about anything else found him, at least. Look, this is not a time when you should be worrying about one person. Cold calculation, right? She stepped out into the street. Lobsang followed. Susan walked as if she owned the street. She scanned every alley and doorway, but not like a potential victim apprehensive of attackers. It seemed to Lobsang that she was disappointed to find nothing dangerous in the shadows. She reached the shop, stepped inside, and paused for a moment to regard the floating flower of broken glass in the shop. Her expression suggested that she considered it to be a perfectly normal kind of thing to find, and had seen far more interesting things. Then she walked on and stopped at the inner door. There was still a glow from the crack, but it was dimmer now. Settling down, she said. Shouldn't be too bad, but there's... Two people in here. Who? Wait, I'll open the door, and be careful.' The door moved very slowly. Lobsang stepped into the workshop after the girl. The spinner began to speed up. The clock glowed in the middle of the floor, painful to look at. But he stared nevertheless. "'It's... it's just as I imagined it,' he said. "'It's the way to... don't go near it,' said Susan. "'It's uncertain death, believe me. Do pay attention.' Lobsang blinked. "'The last couple of thoughts didn't seem to have belonged to him. "'What did you say? "'I said it's uncertain death. "'Is that worse than certain death? "'Much. "'Watch.' "'Susan picked up a hammer that was lying on the floor "'and poked it gently towards the clock. "'It vibrated in her hand when she brought it closer, "'and she swore under her breath as it was dragged from her fingers and vanished. "'Just before it did, there was a brief, contracting ring around the clock "'that might have been something like a hammer would be,' if you rolled it very flat and bent it into a circle. "'Have you any idea why that happened?' she said. "'No. Nor have I. Now imagine that you were the hammer. Uncertain death, see?' Lobsang looked at the two frozen people. One was medium-sized and had all the right number of appendages to qualify as a member of the human race, and so therefore probably had to be given the benefit of the doubt. It was staring at the clock. So was the other figure, which was that of a middle-aged, sheep-faced man, still holding a cup of tea and, as far as Lobsang could make out, a biscuit. "'The one who wouldn't win a beauty contest, even if he was the only entrant, is an Igor,' said Susan. "'The other one is Dr Hopkins of the Clockmakers Guild here.' "'So we know who built the clock, at least,' said Lobsang. "'I don't think so. Mr Hopkins's workshop is several streets away, and he makes novelty watches for a rather strange kind of discerning customer. It's his speciality.' "'Then the Igor must have built it?' "'Good grief, no. Igors are professional servants. They never work for themselves.' "'You seem to know a lot,' said Lobsang, as Susan circled the clock like a wrestler trying to spy out a hold. "'Yes,' she said, without turning her head. "'I do. The first clock broke. This one's holding. Whoever designed it was a genius.' "'An evil genius?' "'It's hard to say. I can't see any signs.' "'What kind of signs?' "'Well, ha, 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 ha!' 
painted on the side would be a definite clue, don't you think? she said, rolling her eyes. I mean, your way, am I? said Lobsang. No, not at all, said Susan, turning her attention to the workbench. Well, there's nothing here. I suppose he could have set a timer, a sort of alarm clock. She stopped. She picked up a length of rubber hose pipe that was coiled on a hook by the glass jars and looked hard at it. Then she tossed it into a corner and stared at it as if she'd never seen anything like it before. Don't say a word, she said quietly. They have some very acute senses. Just ease back among those big glass vats behind you and try to look inconspicuous and do it now. The last word had odd harmonics to it and Lobsang felt his legs begin to move almost without his conscious control. The door moved a little and a man came in. What was strange about the face, Lobsang thought afterwards, was how unmemorable it was. He'd never seen a face so lacking in anything to mention. It had a nose and a mouth and eyes, and they were all quite flawless, but somehow they didn't make up a face. They were just parts that made no proper whole. If they became anything at all, it was the face of a statue, good-looking, but without anything looking out of it. Slowly, like someone who had to think about his muscles, the man turned to look at Lobsang. Lobsang felt himself bunch up to slice time. The spinner groaned a warning on his back. "'That's about enough, I think,' said Susan, stepping forwards. The man was spun round, an elbow was jabbed into his stomach, and then the palm of her hand caught him so hard under his chin that he was lifted off the floor and slammed against the wall. As he fell, Susan hit him on the head with a wrench. "'We might as well be going,' she said, as if she'd just shuffled some paper that had been untidy. "'Nothing more for us here.' "'You killed him?' "'Certainly. He's not a human being. I have a sense about these things. It's sort of inherited. Besides, go and pick up the hose. Go on.' Since she was still holding the wrench, Lobsang did so, or tried to do so. The coil she'd flung into the corner was knotted and tangled like rubber spaghetti. "'Malignancy, my grandfather calls it,' said Susan. "'The local hostility of things towards non-things always increases when there's an auditor about. They can't help it. The hosepipe test is very reliable in the field, according to a rat I know.' "'Rat,' thought Lobsang, but he said. "'What's an auditor?' "'And they have no sense of colour.' They don't understand it. Look how he's dressed. Grey suit, grey shirt, grey shoes, grey cravat, grey everything. Um, uh, perhaps it was just someone trying to be very cool. You think so? No loss there, then, said Susan. Anyway, you're wrong. Watch. The body was disintegrating. It was a fast and quite ungory process, a sort of dry evaporation. It simply became floating dust which expanded away and vanished. But the last few handfuls formed... Just for a few seconds a familiar shape. That too vanished with the merest whisper of a scream. That was a dlang, he said. An evil spirit. The peasants down in the valleys hang up charms against them, but I thought they were just a superstition. No, they're a substition, said Susan. I mean, they're real, but hardly anyone really believes in them. Mostly everyone believes in things that aren't real. Something very strange is going on. These things are all over the place, and they've got bodies. That's not right. We've got to find the person who built the clock. And, uh, what are you, Miss Susan? Me? I'm a schoolteacher. She followed his gaze to the wrench that she still held in her hand and shrugged. It can get pretty rough at break time, can it? said Lobsang. There was an overpowering smell of milk. Lutze sat bolt upright. It was a large room, 
and he had been placed on a table in the middle of it. By the feel of the surface it was sheeted with metal. There were churns stacked along the wall, and big metal bowls ranged beside a sink the size of a bath. Under the milk smell were many others, disinfectant, well-scrubbed wood, and a distant odour of horses. Footsteps approached. Lutze lay back hurriedly and shut his eyes. He heard someone enter the room. They were whistling under their breath, and they had to be a man because no woman in Lutze's long experience had ever whistled in that warbling, hissing way. The whistling approached the slab, stayed still for a moment, then turned away and headed for the sink. It was replaced by the sound of a pump handle being operated. Lutze half-opened one eye. The man standing at the sink was quite short, so that the standard-issue blue and white striped apron he wore almost reached the floor. He appeared to be washing bottles. Lutze swung his legs off the slab, moving with a stealthiness that made the average ninja sound like a brass band, and let his sandals gently touch the floor. "'Feeling better?' said the man, without turning his head. "'Oh, er, yeah, fine,' said Lutze. "'I thought, here's a little bald monk sort of fellow,' said the figure, holding a bottle up to the light to inspect it, "'with a wind-up thing on his back, and down on his luck. "'Fancy a cup of tea? Kettle's on, I've got yak butter.' "'Yak, am I still in Ankmore pork?' Lutze looked down at a rack of ladles beside him. The man still hadn't looked round. "'Ah, interesting question,' said the bottle-washer. "'You could say you're sort of in Ankmore pork. "'No to yak milk? "'I can get cow's milk or goat, sheep, camel, llama, "'horse, cat, dog, dolphin, whale or alligator, if you prefer.' "'What? Alligators don't give milk?' said Lutze, grasping the biggest ladle. "'It made no noise as it came off its hook. "'I didn't say it was easy.' The sweeper got a good grip. "'What is this place, friend?' he said. "'You are in... the dairy!' The figure at the sink said the last word as if it was as portentous as Castle of Dread, placed another bottle on the draining board, and, still with his back to Lutze, held up a hand. All the fingers were folded, except for the middle digit, which was extended. "'You know what this is, monk?' he said. "'It's not a friendly gesture, friend.' The ladle felt good and heavy. Lutze had used much worse weapons than this. "'Oh, a superficial interpretation. You are an old man, monk. I can see the centuries on you. Tell me what this is, and know what I am.' The coldness in the dairy got a little colder. "'It's your middle finger,' said Lutze. "'Pah!' said the figure. "'Pah? Yes, pah! You have a brain, use it!' "'Look, it was good of you to... "'You know the secret wisdoms that everyone seeks, monk.' "'The bottle washer paused. "'No, I even suspect that you know the explicit wisdoms, "'the ones hidden in plain view which practically no one looks for. "'Who am I?' "'Lutze stared at the solitary finger. "'The walls of the dairy faded. "'The cold grew deeper. "'His mind raced, and the librarian of memory took over. "'This wasn't a normal place. "'That wasn't a normal man.' A finger, one finger, one of the five digits on a... One of five. One of five. Faint echoes of an ancient legend signalled his attention. One from five is four, and one left over. Lutze very carefully hung the ladle back on its hook. One from five, he said. The fifth of four. There we are. I could see you were educated. You were you were the one who left before they became famous. Yep. But 
This is a dairy and you're washing bottles. Well, I had to do something with me time. But you were the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. And I bet you can't remember my name. Lutze hesitated. No, he said. I don't think I ever heard it. The fifth horseman turned round. His eyes were black, completely black, shiny and black, and without any whites at all. My name, said the fifth horseman, is... Yes? My name is Ronnie. Timelessness grew like ice. Waves froze on the sea. Birds were pinned to the air. The world went still. But not quiet. There was a sound like a finger running around the rim of a very large glass. Come on, said Susan. Can't you hear it, said Lobsang, stopping. But it's no use to us. She pushed Lobsang back into the shadows. The robed grey shape of an auditor appeared in the air halfway down the street and began to spin. The air around it filled with dust, which became a whirling cylinder, which became slightly unsteady on its feet, something that looked human. It rocked backwards and forwards for a moment. It raised its hands slowly and looked at them, turning them this way and that. Then it marched away purposefully. Further along the street, it was joined by another one emerging from an alley. "'This really isn't like them,' said Susan, as the pair turned a corner. "'They're up to something. Let's follow them. "'What about Lutzay? "'What about him? How old did you say he was?' Hey, "'He says he's eight hundred years old. Hard to kill, then. "'Ron is safe enough if you're alert and don't argue. Come on.' She set off along the streets. The auditors were joined by others, weaving between the silent carts and motionless people and along the streets towards, as it turned out, Sator Square, one of the biggest open spaces in the city. It was market day. Silent, motionless figures thronged the stalls, but amongst them there were scurrying grey shapes. There's hundreds of them, said Susan, all human-shaped, and it looks like they're having a meeting. Mr White was losing patience. Until now he had never been aware that he had any, because, if anything, he had been all patience. But now he could feel it evaporating. It was a strange, hot sensation in his head. How could a thought be hot? The mass of incarnated auditors watched him nervously. "'I am Mr. White,' he said to the luckless new auditor that had been brought before him, and shuddered with the astonishment of using that singular word and surviving. "'You cannot be Mr. White also. It would be a matter of confusion.' "'But we are running out of colours,' said Mr. Violet, intervening. "'That cannot be the case,' said Mr. White. "'There is an infinite number of colours.' "'But there are not that many names,' said Miss Tope. "'That is not possible. A colour must have a name. "'We can find only one hundred and three names for green "'before the colour becomes noticeably either blue or yellow,' said Miss Crimson. "'But the shades are endless. "'Nevertheless, the names are not. "'This is a problem that must be solved. "'Add it to the list, Miss Brown.' We must name every possible shade. One of the female auditors looked startled. I cannot remember all the things, she said, nor do I understand why you are giving orders. Apart from the renegade, I have the greatest seniority as an incarnate. Only by a matter of seconds, said Miss Brown. 
that is immaterial. Seniority is seniority. That is a fact. It was a fact. Auditors respected facts. And it was also a fact, Mr. White knew, that there were now more than 700 auditors walking rather awkwardly around the city. End of CD 7